Lancer Soccer is on the air. WKR Channel 13 is proud to present tonight's North American Soccer League game live via satellite from San Diego, California between the Rochester Lancers and the San Diego Soccers. Tonight's game is brought to you in part by Budweiser. The King of Beers presents The King of Sports. So now sit back and enjoy soccer at its best. Brought to you by Budweiser. And by the R.T. French Company, the Rochester-based company that makes French's mustard, the kind that outsells all the others combined. French's mustard, spread a little sunshine. And by Chase Pitkin Home Centers, where you'll find everything for in and around your home. And at Chase Pitkin, the quality is always higher than the price. And by Mr. Steak, America's steak expert in Greece, Henrietta, and Narundquet. Mr. Steak for a fancy restaurant dinner without the fancy price. everybody and welcome to Rochester Lancer Soccer. I'm Rod DeFrance along with Jack Palvino and we're here to bring you the opening game for the Lancers against the San Diego Soccers. And Jack, usually when a team comes to San Diego, they have to worry about the heat. I don't think they're going to have to worry about that tonight. Ron, I think our Lancers have scored a moral victory already. We have brought Rochester weather to Southern California. It's 55 degrees at the moment. We're looking for Charlie Shiano's overcoat to keep warm. And you're not missing much weather-wise by not being here tonight. But it's a great night for soccer, and it's a great night for the players. A lot of new players, and we're going to have that starting lineup for you right after these messages. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello! What is new? What is happening? How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, and of course, it's Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast, uh, our journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by, and uh, this week, a little special treat uh, for you uh, soccer fans out there. We're going to get into uh, one of the more uh, enigmatic uh, franchises in the uh, old North American Soccer League's history. Uh, that being the Rochester Lancers with our guest this week, uh, the great soccer writer, the Zelig of soccer, he calls himself, Michael Lewis, uh, who has been uh, reporting on this sport even before it was a thing. Uh, I don't know, geez, was 30 some odd, maybe more years ago, and is still going strong. Thank you very much. Uh, running the website frontrowsoccer.com. But before and during that journey, uh, many, many stops, many ports of call and and stories written about uh, the great sport of soccer and professionally, especially in the United States. Uh, you'll you'll seen some of his great history uh, pieces in The Guardian and just a whole host of places. It got his start, as you'll hear uh, in our conversation, stumbling into this uh, fledgling franchise in the old NASL uh, in the middle of the 1970s called the Rochester Lancers. Uh, and you'll hear sort of the story of how he sort of discovered and then became sort of the beat writer for that team and, and sort of rode that rocket ship, not only along with the Lancers, but with the North American Soccer League for the years that uh, followed uh, until their demise at the end of the decade. And we get into some really sort of interesting uh, history, even before the Lancers sort of hit Michael's radar. I think a lot of people sort of forget that, uh, 
you know, while the Rochester Lancers had a, a pretty fun and interesting run uh, in the NASL during their time until 1980, uh, they joined the NASL in 1970. And if they hadn't joined along with the, uh, the Washington Darts, uh, these two teams from the, shall we say, relatively ragtag and ethnically centric American Soccer League, the NASL, which had really was down to five teams, and, and depending on your review of history, maybe even four teams after the 1969 season, after having started uh, with grand fanfare as two leagues in 1967, and then as a combined North American Soccer League newly named in 1968. Those two years in pro soccer, uh, some of which we've explored in previous episodes, in essence, sort of uh, uh, yielded or melded into uh, an unmitigated uh, disaster and almost, uh, you know, knocking on death's door after the 1969 season. I mean, you had mo- the majority of the franchises uh, running for Z Hill, shall we say, and the ownership and the, the dollars lost. Uh, and you were talking about, a you know, basically a, a handful of teams that were left without the uh, the introduction and the uh, defection, shall we say, from the ASL of the Rochester Lancers uh, and the Washington Darts. The NASL would have died a whole lot earlier. Uh, that it wound up doing so after a meteoric run through the early part of the 1980s. And we've talked about that in other episodes, but uh, our focus this week is on the uh, unique story of the uh, Green Bay Packers, if you will, the NASL, they being the Rochester Lancers. That's the topic we're going to get into today with our guest, uh, Michael Lewis. And uh, this will be one of a number of conversations that we'll have, Michael, because he is probably, you know, probably one of the most prolific and long-lasting and uh, has been there, done that uh, in the realm of soccer, uh, professionally and otherwise in this country, and lots of other topics uh, to explore in other in other settings. But today, we I, I thought we kind of start with the Rochester Lancers story, since that was his beat, his real first pro beat as a fledgling uh, reporter for the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, uh, arguably a shell of its former self, now owned by Gannett and and we'll see who who owns it in the months to come as private equity circles it. Uh, but back in the day, uh, Michael Lewis was a uh, prodigious writer uh, and follower and a chronicler, chronicler, you say that uh, it's hard to say, you know, under duress for this franchise known as the Rochester Lancers. And that's our, uh, that's our topic this week. I think you'll find it really interesting. I learned uh, a bunch of stuff in particular, uh, you indoor soccer fans, you MISL fans, you New York Arrows fans. Uh, you want to uh, squint really hard and listen very carefully because, as you may or may not know, the Rochester Lancers of the late 70s became largely the team that was the indoor New York Arrows in the MISL for most of their four years of consecutive uh, championship runs from the 1978-79 season uh, all the way for the next four seasons. Don Popovich, who was the coach of the Lancers, was also the coach of the New York Arrows. Uh, you had uh, players who did so-so or okay in Rochester outdoors, but killed it indoors. I mean, we're talking about Rato Chila and uh, Fred Gurgurev, uh, Gene Strenisser, and uh, who could forget Bronco Sagoda, uh, Damir Satevsky. I mean, these are these are names. Uh, Pat Urkeley, these are all players that did double duty. And, uh, and Steve Jungle, even, the lord of all indoors, right, uh, wound up playing for both of these teams as well. So very interesting connection. Uh, between these two teams, sort of uh, an interesting little footnote uh, in the annals of pro soccer. All of that as we get into our conversation with Michael Lewis coming up in just a moment's time. Uh, And before so, we uh, want to uh, call out one of our 
awesome sponsors, and we've got a bunch under our wings, and we uh, we appreciate all of them, of course. Uh, but this week, we want to uh, put the spotlight on our friends at Streaker Sports. StreakerSports.com, that's the website to go to. And uh, they uh, fancy themselves, and, and frankly, rightly so, uh, as the purveyor of sports culture. And once you hit the site, you will uh, know immediately what they're all about. Uh, and it's a lot of sort of uh, old school kind of uh, tipping of caps, shall we say, to, uh, you know, the spirit of what sports was and frankly, in a more modern way, can be all over again. And uh, there's just amazing uh, array of, of jerseys and T-shirts and hats and sweatshirts, other kinds of accessories. Uh, they've got some really cool sort of uh, collections. Uh, they've got uh, the D2 Mighty Ducks 25th Anniversary Collection. They've got a, a Caddyshack Collection uh, of really cool stuff. And they also have, of course, which is really special to us, a bunch of defunct league collections. Uh, and in particular, uh, four great leagues, all of which we've explored uh, in various facets on this show. And uh, we'll continue to do so in episodes to come. Uh, the ABA, you're going to find great shirts and memorabilia there. Uh, you know, the USFL, of course. The WHA, lots of great shirts and stuff there. And even the predecessor to today's National Lacrosse League, the MILL, the Major Indoor Lacrosse League. And then we've had a couple of episodes dedicated to that, too. Uh, if you fancy yourself as a fan of any of those old leagues and, frankly, just other cool sports T-shirts and and uh, and wear, by all means, please check out streakersports.com, the purveyor of sports culture. And uh, make sure when you go to the site and you find something you like, no, find something you love, use that promo code that we're going to give you right now. And that's good seats. Yep. Good seats. That's the promo code. 10% off everything you buy at streakersports.com. Again, streakersports.com, promo code good seats for 10% off. We thank our friends at Streaker Sports. Really cool site, really cool stuff. And, uh, you know, as they proverbially say, you'll be glad you did. All right. So uh, also, I hope they'll be glad you did. You stayed around uh, for our fun chat uh, with our pal Michael Lewis as we get into the Rochester Lancers story, the original Rochester Lancers of the old North American Soccer League. Here is our discussion, our conversation, our fun chat coming right at you. So how did you even stumble into this sort of soccer sort of uh, area of interest and or coverage. Um, arguably, you were, uh, I, I know you uh, somewhat jokingly refer to yourself as the zealot of uh, American soccer reporters, but uh, or American soccer generally. But, you know, you were a soccer reporter back before it was even, you know, really a coveted thing. How did you get involved in the sport in the first place? Well, you mentioned Syracuse University. Well, I went there uh, for my final two years of, of college uh, after going to Nassau Community College and actually writing about uh, this goalkeeper at Nassau Community College. You might have heard of him, Bruce Arena. Could you not? Never saw him play, but I did some uh, write-ups about the uh, the soccer team. But I went to Syracuse, figured I'd write uh, football, basketball, the big-time sports there. And I found out, hey, wait a minute now, I, I just want to write, get better. So I decided, oh, I'll cover some soccer. So they tell me when the first the game of the soccer club. This is before they had a soccer team there. And I show up and they gave me the wrong time. The game was over. And the only person there was the coach of the Syracuse club team. And he was in the bushes looking for one of the soccer balls that were kicked uh, probably over the goal. 
And I wound up talking to him and I got a story out of it. And uh, Syracuse had lost, I believe it was three to two that day. I forgot who they played. Uh, I couldn't tell you any details about the game. The coach filled me in. Uh, but he found the ball that he was looking for, and my lead was not all was lost. Um, didn't Again, didn't know very much about soccer. Um, covered the team a bit here or there. Um, and then, but like I said, I wanted to cover, you know, the, the bigger time sports there, football and, and basketball. Um, 1974, joined the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. Uh, had visions of becoming a baseball writer someday or, or any other big time sport for that matter. Um, covered high school the first year, like a lot of us do, uh, or a lot of us did back in the day. Um, a good entry level job uh, to see what you can do. Um, oh, about six months after I uh, started uh, covering the City Catholic League in, in Rochester, New York, um, I'm called over to the um, desk of the assistant sports editor, um, Bill Parker, and he has a, a, a giant pile of um, files on his desk, and he starts talking about the Rochester Lancers, the, uh, the local soccer team that played in the North American Soccer League. And uh, even though I had covered some soccer at Syracuse University, it was not my number one choice <laughs> uh, to, to cover on a regular basis. And the way he was talking, I could tell this was going to become my beat. Now, I should give you a little background about the Rochester Lancers at that time. It seemed like they had more things happening off the field than on the field. We're talking the winter of 1975. Pelé had not joined the, the NASL quite yet. So it was still much, very much a struggling league at the time. Um, and the Lancers had ticket uh, problems off the field. Uh, the the Coaches getting fired an average of once per season. Uh, lots of uh, lots of players going in and out of the team. Um, just did not seem to be my cup of tea. But here I am, uh, Bill Parker. I remember him telling me at the end of his uh, little monologue, congratulations, you're covering your first professional team. And he pushes the files towards me. And all I wanted to do was push the files back. Thank you, but no thank you. I'm 22 years old. I'm under probation. We had a, every, Anyone who was hired by the, the paper um, was under a year probation. And even though I apparently I was doing well that they wanted me to cover a professional team plus high schools, that was good. I, I, but at the time, I'm thinking, what did I get myself into? Of course, I didn't get myself into this. They volunteered me for it, but you're not going to turn down an assignment. Well, here we are how many decades later, and I'm still covering the beautiful game. I fell in love with it, and I guess we're going to fill in the blanks <laughs> along the way in, in the next several minutes. So why why did you initially resist it then? Because it seems like that, uh, I mean, you said the, the Lancers were the, indeed, professional sports franchise uh, in Rochester, aside from you know, uh, some, some significant minor league teams, but uh, why the initial resistance and or pushback? You know, soccer was not a popular sport at the time. Like I said, it was months, a few months before Pelé signed with the Cosmos. Uh, the Lancers at the time did not have a very good reputation around the city just because of, like I said, a ticket problems, coaches getting fired. And I probably should have known as a, as a, as a sports writer or as a writer reporter Wow, that's that should be up my alley. Lots of good stuff to write about. 
but I didn't know a lot about soccer too. And it was so difficult finding out about the sport, let alone the league. And I have to admit at that time, teams sent out press releases on a regular basis, not just the Lancers, but other teams in the NASL. But I had never seen a professional soccer game. I've only, I had only seen some college games. Um, I remember going to some downtown uh, stores looking for books, any sort of books on soccer, found something called Soccer USA by Chuck Cassio, which was a fantastic book because it wasn't pure soccer. It was about anecdotes about the game. So it was very interesting and it kept me uh, riveted uh, reading it. And when I got to the rules and regulations in the back, I was more into the sport than I, I thought I could have been. Soccer was not on TV on a regular basis. Today, we're spoiled. It's 24-7. It's somewhere, you know, whatever cable channel you have or channels you have, you uh, there's soccer going on somewhere on, on your uh, TV, let alone let's not even talk about how every game in the world is streamed. So it was just so difficult to learn, to learn about. Fortunately, I had some great mentors at the paper. And this is the sad thing I think about journalism today when there are less writers and and, and less uh, experienced people around having mentors. And uh, they uh, uh, give credit to Alex Lloyd, Jim Rickey, and probably a few other people that just don't come to mind at the moment that really helped me, pointed me in the right direction. That first year was one hell of a, a learning experience. But, um, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. I think slowly but surely, uh, it got into my blood because I was meeting people from around the world. Uh, the Lancers had players from England, Ghana, Nigeria, Argentina, Brazil, Canada. Yeah. And even the U S at the time, there was an Americanization policy in the league that the, every team had to have at least one American on the field at all times. I remember my first interview with a player, um, he was from England, and I thought, oh, this should be easy. He speaks English. I speak English. It was after an indoor game. Uh, first time I spoke with uh, Tommy Ord, a very talented uh, striker who could uh, was known to put the ball in the back of the net on a fairly regular basis. His cockneyed accent I, I struggled with, and, I'm, I, and I remember after that first interview, my Lord, if, I am, if I'm struggling with someone who could speak English, what's going to happen with players from Argentina, Ghana, Nigeria. Uh, and as it turned out, it was easy. <laughs> it was easier talking to them because their accents were not as severe as uh, Tommy Ord's cockneyed accent. But I, I think it started to grow on me. I got a chance to, um, to see the world, at least in Rochester, and eventually see the United States. And then uh, more so later on in, in, in my career, see the world. And it opened up so many different avenues for me, um, not just seeing memorable uh, soccer matches, great players, but just to see the world as well, too. And um, it's funny. Uh, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to tell that story about how I got the job uh, covering the Lancers way back then, because I kind of laugh at it, looking back at it uh, so many years later, how it did change my life. Well, the timing, though, is actually uh, uh, almost exquisite, right? Because you're talking about the uh, the winter of 75. I'm assuming this is the months leading up to the 1975 season of the of the Lancers, right? 
Yes, it was January of 75. I think it was January 22nd or something to that effect. Uh, I've, I've got it written down somewhere. But, and, and I like you, to, yeah. you don't remember the exact hour and minutes, huh? Okay. Uh, but, uh, no. <laughs> but but uh, but the, the timing of that, right, for, for those who, you know, are sort of unaware or just generally knowledgeable about the NASL without any of the specifics, right, you alluded to arguably probably the, the, the biggest moment, uh, transitional moment in its history you know, which came uh, in June uh, slash July of that year when Pele came and uh, and signed for the New York Cosmos. It would be also interesting, if, uh, I actually want to ask, is to sort of when you discovered, you know, the history and, and when did you sort of go back in time in the Lancers history? Because this is a league that, you know, just a few years earlier, unbeknownst to you while you were, you know, gallivanting around uh, Syracuse's campus, right, uh, that was on death's door. And this franchise, the Rochester Lancers, was instrumental, frankly, in in saving the league, not necessarily by winning the championship in 1970 when they jumped from the uh, the old uh, American Soccer League. But, you know, without them and in uh, one other franchise, uh, you could make the argument that the NA, you wouldn't have a job in 1975 in the NASL. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Rochester Lancers were formed in 1967. They played in the American Soccer League, which was more or less, you know, uh, the B League, the second division, the minor league, whatever you want to say. But the owners there um, got together. Um, I think uh, it was low, very, very low budget. Players were getting maybe $7,500 a game, but they did it for the love. And when I say they, I mean the players and the owners, too. They, they did not have super-duper uh, deep pockets like today's billionaires. But um, they became a respectable franchise in the league. Uh, on and off the field, and uh, the NASL, and I won't go deeply into the um, to, to its past, uh, but uh, it had dwindled down from I think what 17 or 18 teams to four teams after the uh, 1969 season. And Lamar Hunt, a driving force in soccer for two, not one but two leagues. Uh, we all know about uh, uh, him with the. Uh, with Major League Soccer, the, uh, the U.S. Open Cup is named after Lamar Hunt. He uh, contacts uh, the owners of the Lancers, Charlie Sciano and Pat Dinalfo, and asks them, um, are you interested in, in joining our league? Um, and they said yes. And can you maybe uh, convince the uh, the Washington uh, Darts to come along too? Because we'd like to have an even number of teams in the league. And um, the Darts jumped leagues with the with the Lancers. Um, the NASL went from four to six teams, certainly not, a, not a, a very impressive number of teams in a so-called national soccer league, but yes, it kept the league on, on going. And in those early days, the Lancers were among the, the driving forces of the league. Um, they, they won the title, like you said, in 1970. Um, they came close to winning in 1971. They probably had a better team in 1971, and they lost uh, to the eventual champions in the semifinals, uh, the Dallas Tornado. And what made that series remarkable was it was a best-of-three series. Uh, the Lancers uh, won the first game 2-1 to one in a game that lasted 176 minutes. I kid you not. I'm not making this up. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they, they, they did not. Um, uh, they basically were going to let them play until someone scored. They, every everyone assumes that they're going to score after the first 
OT, the second OT. That's what they were called at the time. It wasn't called extra time. I'm, I'm, I'm using the correct nomenclature there for that era. And uh, they, there was no mechanism, you know, penalty kicks, replay the game or whatever. They, and they just kept on playing and playing. Game started at 8 o'clock. At 11.59, Carlos Medetieri of the Lancers scores the winning goal. Four minutes short of a, a <laughs> two hours, um, two-hour soccer game. Uh, and the Lancers win the first game two to one. As it turns out, the Lancers, um, I guess you could say maybe uh, ran out of steam, ran, ran out of gas. They're playing an excellent uh, Dallas uh, Tornado team um, that was coached by Ron Newman, who a legendary coach in the game. In fact, the major arena soccer league's uh, uh, championship game is called the uh, Ron Newman Cup, named after uh, the late great coach. Uh, he, he had a very, very good team, and uh, his team went on to, to beat the Lancers. And uh, the, the third game was a 148-minute match that uh, Dallas won. But um, I'm uh, getting a little off uh, the base there. Uh, they were among the, uh, the, the top teams around. In 1972, they represented the United States in the CONCACAF Champions League. What, that, what it was called way back then, nowhere close to what it was today. It was a six-game series uh, played in Guatemala, and the Lancers finished a very respectable uh, fourth place out of six teams. So they were up up uh, and flying high, but unfortunately, as the North American Soccer League grew, adding West Coast teams, more teams, and getting bigger, larger cities, uh, Lancers could not always keep up with uh, the rest of the league, particularly after Pelé came, which was a boom to soccer in so many different ways. But it seemed like every team wanted to get its big-time uh, foreign player in there, whether it was Bobby Moore with San Antonio, George Best with um, with Fort Lauderdale, and I think eventually uh, L.A. And, and, and San Jose, and of course, uh, the great Johan Cruyff in Los Angeles and in Washington. So unfortunately for the Lancers, uh, even though they <laughs> uh, go down in history as saving the league, they couldn't always keep up with some of the bigger spending teams, particularly owners uh, that had deeper pockets than they did. But you must have even noticed then circa 75, 76, right, that something, this small market Rochester franchise in this league that was you know, gaining some heat, right? Coming out of 74, I mean, I think the, the uh, NASL uh, Soccer Bowl, I think it was the first year the Soccer Bowl was named that, or a championship, whatever, what was on CBS. And, and 75, there was more, you know, more teams, not just Pelé, but it seemed like it was really, truly gaining some steam and some uh, and some heat. And in Rochester, you know, you're it's in your backyard, right? You're, you're in the midst of, of a league that's on the rise. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. I, by 1977, I was convinced soccer was... I was, I'm not going to say made it in this country, not by a long shot, but it was definitely pointed in the right direction. You could, you could see it, the better attendances. Um, yes, there was no such thing as a soccer-specific stadium, but I think um, the teams were trying to make sure they were getting out of baseball stadiums as much as possible and playing in at least the American gridiron football stadiums. Um, and, you know, you could see the popularity growing. Uh, at, especially at the youth level, uh, youth leagues, 
um, were were plentiful, uh, and you could that all goes back to Pelé. He started a uh, a boom that was still follow uh, still uh, feeling today, um, and and so many different levels. And I didn't make a decision at that time to say, "Gee, I'm going to cover soccer forever." Uh, I was covering some other sports uh, in in the winter time too, ice hockey and and, and also college sports. But it was definitely, um, again, pointed in the right direction. So uh, explain to me sort of like how you're uh, becoming sort of the beat reporter, right? Because you didn't have a whole lot of soccer experience. You know, it wasn't necessarily your first or even second or even third choice uh, of sports maybe to cover as as one of your first, you know, full-time beat uh, gigs. What's the process by which you're getting your reps, so to speak, in terms of stories and and aligning yourself with the team and, and sort of learning more about the game and getting sophisticated enough to to know the nuances of it. And, and frankly, what was the scene in Rochester? The crowds, Holler Stadium, you know, what, what was that sort of like as well? Well, uh, I went to practice as much as I can. And, and, and back in those days, uh, a lot of times we had to work the desk at, uh, at the paper at night. So sometimes uh, you'd go, you know, on your own, on your own time to to things like this. And since I was single at the time and I had um, no one to uh, worry about saying, where the hell were you or, or whatever, I would uh, go to practice early if they had something in the afternoon or I would uh, tell tell the paper, hey, I'm coming in maybe a little late, an hour late that day, just to, to see what the team is doing, talking to the, the players, the coaches. Um, like I said, there wasn't any soccer to watch on TV this was a little before, even before the first uh, soccer program as we know it in the United States. Soccer made in Germany was shown on uh, public uh, public broadcasting, and I just asked questions, and you know, I had some really good mentors, and stayed very focused at games, and knowing that <laughs> I was probably going to make mistakes, don't be embarrassed by it, and. Um, I don't think I made too many blunders or anything like that. And I think in the beginning, I was probably more into writing about human interest stories because I was still learning about the game and I knew the basics, but it really took me until my third season until I felt very comfortable that I, if I had an opinion and it was different than the coach's opinion, I wouldn't just change my mind because, oh, well, I don't know anything about soccer. He does. He must be right. But that's how long it took for me to become comfortable uh, with covering the game. Um, Hollander Stadium, wow. I I wish it was around today. I I would love to take you on a tour of it. Um, I know people have called it rickety Hollander Stadium. I probably have called it that in one time or another. Uh, It was um, built in 19... 48, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, for Aquinas Institute, a well-known high school in Rochester. They used to fill up the stadium on a regular basis with high school football. Uh, It was called Aquinas Stadium at the time. Um, The upkeep through the years, unfortunately, um, wasn't uh, wasn't as good as maybe the Aquinas uh, football teams, and it, it got worn down. Um, it, it was more like a horseshoe of the stadium. There was no roof to it. Um, there was a press box there. Um, it fit about 18,000, maybe 20,000 people there. It, it did fill up a few times for soccer, 
Um, and unfortunately, it really went downhill when the city of Rochester took over it because uh, they just did not do a very good job of uh, keeping the, the field up to uh, playable standards. I remember one time I covered a high school football game there and they, the city of the workers used the wrong type of lime on the field. It was the caustic uh, type that when mixed with water, it burns your skin and the players on the Aquinas football team, uh, I would say 10 to 15 of them got some uh, burns on their body after that game. Um, the field was um uh, Someone, I think, uh, once called it uh, resembled a lunar surface because it had such uh, little grass on it. And uh, no doubt about it, it was not a very playable field. Players did not like to play on that field, uh, visiting players. Franz Beckenbauer, yes, that same great Franz Beckenbauer, he called it a nice place to, to grow potatoes. Uh, and actually, I one time when I was trying to uh, get his attention some uh, time years later, I used that and he turned around and smiled. But um, I have to give the uh, one of the coaches there a lot of credit. One of the coach I uh, covered for four years there, uh, Don uh, Popovich, his uh, given name is Dragon Popovich. And I used his name Dragon in the story because it would always make for a great headline after a loss. A dragon breathes fire after a loss type of headline, um, especially when he was criticizing the team. But uh, he built his team around the stadium. In other words, it was he, he had four defenders. And remember, this is back in the late 70s. These four defenders averaged six feet and about 180 uh, pounds each, which is pretty formidable back then. Um, and he knew what he wanted. He, he did have some talented players in, in, in the attacking area, but the place was called Fortress Rochester. And what made, I think, it even more interesting and maybe a little more intimidating for the players was that there was a snow fence that separated the, the, uh, the stands from the field. Um, and there were a couple of times when the, um, uh, at least one time when, the fans invaded the pitch during a game, and that did not help uh, but give the uh, the team a black eye at the time. But uh, intriguing stadium, like I said, I wish it was around. You wouldn't believe believe it if I gave you a uh, tour of the place. Well, I, I remember it from having grown up as a Cosmos fan, having a, member, a memorable uh, uh, game that was on uh, TVS, uh, Television Network, the playoff game against the Cosmos, where... I guess the first game of the two-game series, uh, this is back when there were two games and then there was a mini-game if, the, if there had to be a tiebreaker. And you have a, a nice little column uh, that I dug up. But uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was 20,005 fans. Uh, but you're describing a stadium that doesn't sound like it accommodates 20,000 people, let alone maybe even 18,000, uh, without some, uh, shall we say, I don't know, squinting or, or, or other accommodations, shall we say. Well, they added some bleachers. And they also had a um, uh, operation called uh, Operation Squeeze In. In other words, the fans were literally packed in the stands. I've never felt so much elect so much electricity in that game. Um, in fact, the Lancers dominated the Cosmos the first 10, 15 minutes, scored the first goal, and uh, before the Cosmos uh, regained their their senses, 
um, in the second half and won. But it was a fabulous atmosphere. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I remember one game, they had 13,000 people at the at the game. And I was on the field for some sort of um, pregame ceremony. And I remember looking up and I, I and I felt like, man, this feels like 40,000 people at the game. And I got a, a much better idea of how it felt on the field when there were plenty of uh, people in the stands. Going back to that uh, the Cosmos game, a couple of um, familiar names. Um, Steve Hunt, who wound up scoring the uh, the game-winning goal uh, in Soccer Bowl 77. If my memory serves me correctly, he scored the game-winner in that match. And goalkeeper Shep Messing made some key saves for uh, the Cosmos, in the se- particularly in the second half, uh, to secure the victory. But uh, it was still the stadium's probably uh, biggest glory day ever, uh, 2005. Good memory there on that, by the way. Did the fans kind of sort of recognize that they had sort of like their own, uh, you know, they had their big league pro team in town? Or or were they kind of, those crowds seem to be, or sounds like they were more, I don't know, the exception rather than the rule when you look at the average attendance over those years? Uh, Yeah, it it did, the average attendance did grow toward the end of the franchise. I think when they started really uh, pushing the team more, uh, when soccer was growing in general in the country. Uh, I think uh, many of their fans early on might have been ethnic fans. I know that uh, Rochester has a huge Italian community, and, and the, some of their early uh, teams, actually their first team, um, uh, the Corbett came from the um, Italian American Sports Club, which won, by the way, the 1963 Amateur Cup title, which was the inspiration to, to turn uh, to, to get a professional team someday. So it definitely has its roots from way back then. Um, I think you had some ardent and knowledgeable soccer fans, passionate soccer fans. Uh, Unfortunately, some of the team's antics at the time, whether it was firing a coach when the team was in first place, going through three or four coaches in a year, might have turned off some potential uh, soccer fans. And like it or not, at the time, soccer uh, was a tough, it wasn't anything that would happen overnight necessarily. Yes, no doubt the Pelé era uh, put it into a different orbit, but it took, you know, it was, it was going to take evolution instead of a revolution in, in many cities at that time, including Rochester. And that's something I've learned as much as we want to have things done yesterday. You know, we have to be patient. And I keep, I like to use that. It's evolution, not revolution. But um, the, the, the Rochester soccer uh, fans uh, were knowledgeable and passionate. I, I got some intriguing letters from them. And I, what I mean by intriguing, yes, letters, not emails. We didn't have email in back in those days. But uh, some, uh, you know, some very good constructive criticism um, of, of the team. Um, and uh, I was impressed with that. And it, it gave me an appreciation of, who was watching the game back then, you know, it wasn't just, um, in anyone who said, oh, let's, let's, let's go on a date to a soccer game. It was more than that. These, these fans cared about the team that showed up. Well, it's interesting. You're mentioning sort of almost the, uh, Italian slash ethnic, uh, kind of, uh, roots, which by the way, just certainly describes the, uh, the American soccer league in the late sixties, even before it became sort of the more, I don't know, professional stepsister, if you will, of the NASL in, in the 70s and early 80s. 
But you also mentioned a key figure in all this, Don Popovich, right? He obviously uh, being of Serbian background, right? So, uh, you know, maybe a little, a couple of minutes on, on, on him and his imprint on the team, because, you know, that it really did become almost like a, a, a Serbian flavored team. And we'll get into the arrows in a second as well. Um, but there's also a playoff series even prior to that Cosmos series in 77, where uh, that ethnicity, I guess, uh, really uh, uh, was uh, quite pronounced, I guess. Right. Uh, yes, it was. Uh, but we could spend a few hours on on this uh and I think this is, you know, like I said, 1977 was a turning point for me in terms of getting into soccer and just learning about the world, even though I hadn't, uh, except for maybe going to Canada, I hadn't left the United States. But there was the Rochester Lancers, and like you said, uh, coach was uh, Serbian, and he had a number of Serbian players on the team. He had, um, Don Popovich had uh, coached in, in Toronto, and he coached a team called the uh, Toronto White Eagles, Serbian White Eagles, um, and he brought a few players down from that that team. Their um, their huge rivals was a team, uh, the Croatian team, and I think uh, we all are familiar with the uh, Serbo-Croatian crisis in the eighties and nineties, and uh, it, this goes back uh, to World War Two. It gave me a, a lesson in history uh, at the time I was not aware of, not that I became an expert uh, of it as well. Uh, at the time, uh, back in the mid-70s, while the NASL was trying to shed any of its uh, past uh, ethnic-related uh, uh, teams, uh, there was new owners in, uh, for the Toronto metros, it was a bunch of, well, it was the Croatian community. Uh, and they renamed their team the Toronto Metros Croatia. They went on to win the 1976 Soccer Bowl, beating the uh, Minnesota Kicks 3 um, nothing, And uh, much to the chagrin of the league, because in, in all the league's official press releases for the game, they just called them Toronto or the Toronto Metros. They never used Croatia in it. Michael, before we go further on that one, what do you, do you know any of the background as to why that was even sort of allowed to happen? It almost feels to me like uh, Commissioner Woosnam in the league was almost uh, compromised because of the ownership shift or, or change. I don't know the exact details off the top of my head, but uh, my gut feeling is they wanted to have a team in Toronto and they couldn't find other owners, most likely. And the Croatian community stepped up. Uh, although the when I say community, I really mean it because after games, or I shouldn't say after Sunday services at a church, after church services on Sunday, members of the Croatian community would go to the basement and pass the hat around to um, uh, accrue money so they could bring in uh, an, another uh, player for the team. I kid you not. Uh, I, I don't think they would do anything like that today in Major League Soccer. I um, And the reason why I could say this is I had eyewitnesses there. I spoke with the father um, of, of, of one of the Croatian churches who was there. He said he never uh, gave any money, but he was a fan of the team. He hoped they, they, they did well. Um, yeah, he, <laughs> pretty incredible. Um, so the, their fans were... Uh, 
they they loved uh, they loved that team, especially after winning the, the whole title in 1976. And uh, I, because Rochester was so close to Toronto, I was able to travel with the, uh, with the team for uh, some regular season games and playoff games up there. And uh, the fans did not like Rochester one iota. Or I shouldn't say Rochester. The Rochester Lancers one iota because of the coach and some of the players. And I remember one time after a game, I'm pounding on the door of the locker room. I'm trying to get in to do some post-game interviews, but they had locked the door uh, because they were afraid of maybe Croatian fans going in. And I'm, I'm me and Gary Jacobson of, of the rival Times Union were both uh, hammering on the door. Hey, let us in, you know, and we're shouting our names and they let us in. Uh, it was, you know, it was that scary for the, for the team. So, uh, they wound up, anyway, Rochester and Toronto played this incredible playoff series. So, again, this two-game series, if you need a third game, uh, it's a mini-game. The first game, and it was a scoreless draw. Uh, Rochester used, uh, Rochester player Francisco Escos received two yellow cards in the match, but he was never told to leave the field. Uh, Eddie Pearson, the head of uh, NASL refereeing was at the game and I asked him, is there a new rule in this league that, you know, uh, in playoffs, you get a third yellow card and you're out. And basically the, that didn't, someone overheard me talking to him. Someone from the Lancers did. They get down to Popovich on the field. They tell him, Hey, get Escos out of the game. He's got two yellow cards. They replace him with uh, Craig Reynolds, an American. Um, Meanwhile, Rochester loses a player uh, to, uh, to a real red card. Uh, they never really uh, catch up with the Francisco Escos, double yellow equaling a red card. But Rochester has 10 men, and they outplay Toronto. I've never seen anything like this. It was almost like Rochester had the extra player. The problem is they couldn't, do, they couldn't score. They tried everything. They must have outshot Toronto 25 to 10, something to that effect. Mike Stojanovic, Serbian striker for the Lancers, uh, had not one but two penalty kicks. He missed them both. He told me later he just wanted to beat the Croatians so much his adrenaline went crazy. Um, the, the game ended in a scoreless draw. This is after uh, overtime, and they went to a shootout. And a shootout is not the shootout as we know today, which is penalty kicks. This is where players start uh, from 30, uh, from 35 yards out. There was a 35 yard line at the time, which was part of the NASL's offside rule too, um, an experimental uh, rule trying to, to open up the game uh, offensively. Uh, and players had uh, five seconds to run toward the goalkeeper and shoot. And if you scored, you got a, you know, a point, a goal for your team. If you didn't, you get nothing. Well, Rochester um, goes through their players, and uh, Ibrahim Silva comes up again to, to take uh, his second shootout attempt, which I don't recall ever seeing this happen in penalty kicks. It probably has somewhere in the world because soccer, <laughs> whatever you think you're seeing for the first time, has probably happened somewhere in the world. But back in 1977, uh, this is all new to a lot of us. Anyway, Ibrahim Silva puts it away. Uh, Jack Brand, the Rochester goalkeeper, 
who ironically was from Toronto. Uh, no, he was uh, German English background, uh, not Croatian or Serbian, by the way. Uh, he makes uh, a key save and Rochester wins. Crazy, crazy game. Um, in my lead, I said it was, uh, I, I remember the, the, my first sentence, I said it was a soccer game to end all soccer games. And I think, what are we now, 42 years later, I still think that lead holds up until today. I thought it was the craziest soccer game I had ever seen. And at the time I was thinking, maybe I, it was, maybe it was too much hyperbole, but looking back at it, uh, uh, a 25 year old writer uh, knew what he was doing at the time. Well, we thought we saw everything. Game two was in Rochester. Oh yeah. By the way, before I forget Toronto protests, you know, they said that, uh, Ibrahim Silva should not have taken the second shot because, um, because there were, you know, all sorts of problems um, uh, from that game. The league just turned it down. They said referee's decision. Boom, they're playing the second game in Toronto a few days later. Uh, basically, put it into a nutshell, Rochester has two players red carded in the first half. Uh, one was, I think, a, a foul that should have been red carded. Another one was I uh, should have given given the player a severe yellow. And uh, if you look at uh, a Toronto player uh, with crossed eyes, I'll give you a, a second yellow type of situation. Popovich has gone crazy on the bench. Uh, he's basically uh, gesturing to the uh, to the referee. Come on, come on, give me a card, get me out of here. He was that PO'd. Uh, I heard later the referee, and I believe his name is Ron Davies. If again my memory serves me correctly, uh, uh, said that he wasn't going to throw out uh, Popovich because uh, he didn't want uh, total chaos uh, to occur with the Lancers. Lancers hadn't won in Toronto in four or five years. Um, it did not look good. It was a scoreless draw at halftime. Popovich goes into the locker room and puts together a defense. And I give him a lot of credit for this because I don't know how many coaches would go to the limit, um, Catenaccio, which is uh, the ultra-conservative Italian way of playing soccer. Well, basically, <laughs> he, surrounded, <laughs> he surrounded goalkeeper Jack Brand with uh, three central defenders, another ring of defenders, um, had basically um, uh, Ibrahim uh, Silva and Mike Stojanovic as more or less midfielders. I can't call them forwards. And basically we're just waiting for the, the dam to burst sooner or later. Toronto is going to break through and it's the 50th minute, the 60th minute, the 70th minute. And, you know, Rochester is holding them off. It's, it's sort of, it's almost like they, they, they have deflector shields like on Star Trek. Um, and they, they, they were doing a pretty decent job. It wasn't like they were playing desperate soccer either. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, there's a throw-in. Ibrahim um, uh, Silva gets the ball uh, deep in the uh, Toronto end. He shoots and scores. Rochester's winning one nothing. My Lord. You know, we were all thinking Rochester was going to play for a, a shootout, and you know that's how they were going to win the game and maybe win the series. It's the 78th minute, 12 minutes to go. And remember, this is actual 12 minutes. There's no stoppage time. And um, you know, Toronto's 
peeved because uh, they're claiming Silva, by the way, had touched the ball, had a handball. Um, I couldn't tell you one way or the other. We didn't have any replay, and uh, he was screened to me. But but Rochester gets out of there with a a 1-0 victory. And I just said, I can't believe I, I saw two games within, what, a 72, 96-hour period that I just, I don't think I'm ever going to see again. And quite frankly, I haven't. And that's one reason why I think we should all enjoy what we have in front of us. Cause you can't assume you're going to uh, see it again. But um, it was two incredible, crazy games. Um, you know, they were playing in the cauldron of Varsity Stadium, which, by the way, was a, uh, a great uh, football stadium. Um, for the University of Toronto, fit uh, 20,000 fans, a real 20,000-seat stadium, was the closest thing to maybe some of the early soccer Pacific stadiums uh, that we have today in MLS. Fantastic atmosphere. Love the stadium. Uh, but uh, the Croatian fans, by the way, were stunned. This time they weren't going after any, uh, uh, any uh, Rochester Serbian players. I think they filed out uh, silently. Uh, because they couldn't believe their heroes went down so meekly like that. But uh, two of the most memorable games I've ever seen, and I've seen some memorable games since then, but that's still up on my top ten list, believe it or not. All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause, and we want to remind you that our friends at Audible are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. When you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download courtesy of us and Audible. And uh, it's something you can cancel at any time and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be worth using your credit for. One, of course, is The Rise and Rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremet. You could use your credit for that book, and it's a great sort of interview style background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J from all sides. But if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. And uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's the link. And that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy in perpetuity for as long as your device lives, uh, the downloaded book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you joining our conversation once again. 
So why did the team kind of, I don't know, meander their way through the seasons following? I got to think that financial issues kind of had a role. And and and, and it's interesting, too, that, that Don Popovich, you know, uh, probably had a role to play in this, too, as we what I'm always tr- trying to figure out. And, and I'm sure you're going to lead into this is I, I get the sense in those those later years after what arguably would have been some of the most exciting soccer that that town had ever seen. You know, the financial issues caught up with them and and maybe then begot what became the New York Arrows and all that kind of stuff. Can you can you walk me through some of that sort of stuff in the in the latter part of the 70s? Sure. Uh, and I'll go back to, for example, Carlos Menetieri from the 1970 team. And I know that's seven years before, but at the time he was making twenty four hundred dollars a year from the Lancers. And that was the highest salary on the team. He had another uh, job in the meat department of a local uh, supermarket chain, uh, Star Market, to give you an idea of what it was like being a soccer player then back back in 1970. It, it wasn't a full-time job. Uh, many players needed uh, that second job. Americans on that 1977 team were making three to $4,000 a year, which was barely getting by. They were you know, living together. And one American, Craig Reynolds, had to go on unemployment during the offseason, which is totally absurd for a professional athlete. So the, unfortunately, the salaries um, were not very, very high with the Lancers. And to be fair, they weren't always high with other teams in the league, too. Let's face it, teams like the Cosmos, um, Tampa Bay Rowdies, Minnesota Kicks, perhaps the LA uh, Aztecs, I almost said Galaxy there, um, they were paying their players more, or, but um, they were, unfortunately, financial issues uh, uh, did not did not help the team. Uh, again, the league was growing. Uh, the the owners who had their hearts in the right place, you know, just didn't have deep uh, pockets. Uh, unfortunately for them, uh, and um, then came an opportunity. Um, indoor soccer was born. Um, and Don Popovich, uh, uh, who had a background of indoor soccer, bringing over some of the best indoor players in the world to play together on an all-star team, included Bobby Moore, uh, English captain of the 1966 World Cup championship team, the Sabio, the Black Pearl, arguably one of the greatest players of all time. He's from Portugal, among other players. So Popovich had some connections around the world um, and um, some uh, John Luciani, uh, a New Jersey uh, real estate developer, uh, got got to Popovich and said, hey, how would you like to, to coach this indoor team I want to put in the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island? And, uh, and he had money. Uh, I don't know if John Luciani was a billionaire, but he was a multimillionaire. And in those times, that was enough to, uh, to, to run a, a a professional soccer team at the time uh, you have to remember people were complaining that outdoor soccer was too boring not enough goal scoring chances indoor soccer was the exact opposite plenty of goal scoring opportunities maybe too many um it was like a lacrosse game but um, it attracted uh, a new type of fan maybe some old type of fans too it gave an opportunity for uh, many lancer players to play indoors in, in the wintertime. So they could literally have a career playing soccer, not worrying about having a second job. 
Now, not every Lancer went down to play with the Arrows, but uh, plenty of them did. Uh, some of them went to other other teams in the league. Um, Dave Sarakin, I think that's a familiar name to some soccer fans out there. He was a member of the 1976-77 team. He went to play for the uh, for the Pittsburgh Spirit and actually was a, one of the top goal scorers in the league that year, that first year in 78-79. So it gave David an opportunity to continue his soccer career. Uh, Dave, by the way, was... Uh, Bruce Arena's first lieutenant, um, maybe even more so than that for, um, you know, for World Cup teams, for the uh, LA Galaxy, and he coached the team, uh, the national team, uh, on a, they, they, they said he was an interim coach, but he coached the team for an entire year. Uh, I, if you're going to coach a, team, a national team for an entire year, you're not a an interim coach, but and Sarakin was also the coach of the uh, Chicago Fire, both uh, as an assistant right. and uh, uh, and as a head coach when uh, when Bradley uh, left as well. Back in the days when the Fire right. actually were relevant, but that's another story for another yeah. for another day. <laughs> yes, definitely. And so, I mean, it gave uh, players like him a, a chance to continue his career in soccer, their career in soccer. And uh, Popovich uh, put together uh, he I, he knew what skills certain players had that he could. Uh, from the Lancers that would make a successful team. Uh, and he brought in this one player from Yugoslavia um, called Steve Jungle, who uh, he just knew that he could fill the net. And uh, they uh, put together a, a juggernaut of a team that won the uh, first four titles in, in the major indoor soccer league from the 78, 79 season through, well, got to do the math through the 82 season, I think it is. Yeah. And um, they also uh, had this 17-year-old player on the team called Bronco Sagoda um, uh, from Toronto. Uh, by the way, a lot of great soccer players in back in the day came out of Toronto uh, that wound up playing not just for the Lancers, but throughout the uh, North American Soccer League. In fact, at one time, Canadian soccer was ahead of U.S. soccer in terms of uh, uh, talented players, impact players, and even the national team, but that changed in the 80s. Uh, Bronco Segoda was 17 years old and um, it was a perfect complement supplement uh, to uh, Steve Jungle. Uh, Segoda had a uh, blistering shot. He once broke the nose of uh, uh, a New York Arrows practice goalkeeper. Uh, with his hard shot. And as it turned out, he eventually uh, joined the Lancers for a couple of years in 79 and 1980. Um, with an amazing uh, run, he wound up scoring uh, 14 goals in 13 games at the end of the uh, 1979 season and put uh, the Lancers just on the verge of making the playoffs. But going back to the New York Arrows, players were able again to, to earn a living players such as Jim Pollahan, Craig Reynolds. Um, and you know, they might've had to play soccer 10 months a year, two different types of soccer, but they were playing a sport, um, that they loved, uh, that, that they were talented in and they could bring something to the game. And, uh, in fact, Craig Reynolds wound up, uh, uh, as, as a coach and as assistant coach uh, at the college level, uh, I think most recently with the University of Virginia. So, um, and I, I, it 
gave them a, a second life. The problem was, of course, uh, indoor soccer and outdoor soccer season sometimes mesh together. And in that 1979 season, the, um, the Arrows won a title, their title, in Philadelphia, beating the Philadelphia Fever. They had a comeback and then uh, have a week of training as the Rochester Lancers come back to Philadelphia and play the Philadelphia Fury the next weekend in their NASL opener. It was crazy. Uh, Lancers lost that game 2-3-0. Uh, they did not look good at all. I can't say the entire Lancers team came from the Arrows, but um, it uh, enough players were not in outdoor soccer shape that you could tell that the team was, for lack of better words, listless. Uh, but uh, at least uh, from the player standpoint, they were earning money. It took a while for the 1979 team to, to get back on track. And like I said, they came very close to reaching the playoffs. But it became a tug of war, tug of war between the Arrows and the Lancers. And the players were making more money either playing with the Arrows or indoor soccer. And let's face it, which way are you going to go? Or which way are you, you know, would you rather play for? Well, at that time, it was a place maybe to, where you can make more money. And uh, there was a tug of war between the, the ownership of, of, of the Arrows and the Lancers as well, too. As it turned out, um, uh, John Luciani bought into the Lancers as a, uh, as a part owner. So did his uh, uh, partner, Bernie Roden. And um, that, that, that rivalry became a Rochester versus New York rivalry in the ownership. And basically what happened was um, the new owners from the New York, New Jersey area had the money, uh, the fresh money, the new money, but the owners in Rochester had the votes. Uh, I believe they had 68% of the uh, voting stock on the team. And it made for some uh, intriguing uh, standoffs. And um, unfortunately, um, uh, fast forwarding to the 1980 season, um, the the team. Well, let's let, let me put it this way: they hired Ray Klavecka as the coach to replace Don Popovich. Uh, he was the former coach of the New York Cosmos. Sure, they thought he would he would be perfect for the job. Uh, the ownership uh, was on board on this. It looked like things were going to be clear sailing, but there were a lot of things happening behind the scenes. Um, Rochester, which uh, was a very slow starting team because um, Rochester, New York, it's in Western New York, upstate New York. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's still pretty cold at this time of the year there. They didn't, uh, they wouldn't have their first game at, at Holler Stadium until like the first week in May. So usually they'd have to play their first two, three, four, five games on the road and they would wind up always being behind the eight ball. Well, in mid-May, they, they beat the Toronto um, team, and they were called now the Blizzard because they were um, sold to a, 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 a communications concern up in Toronto. They beat them 3-1, to one, and it was a fantastic performance. Everyone was happy. Um, 
However, behind the scenes, there was a lot of tension between the uh, the owners, the Rochester and New York, uh, New Jersey factions. The next day, after Rochester beat Toronto three to one, their record was three and four, which the first time in years they were almost at five hundred this early. Uh, the owners, the Rochester owners, call Ray Klobecka into the office. They said you were the greatest, I'm paraphrasing them now, but they said you were the greatest coach uh, the team has ever had. The team is playing very well. And by the way, you're fired. Because they wanted to show, they wanted to flex their muscles. Um, you know, they didn't have the money, but they had the power. And this started a year-long battle between the owners. And, um, it, you know, one time... Um, the team hadn't been paid. The Rochester Lancers hadn't been paid for several weeks. And before the Cosmos came to town in June, uh, the, the players actually met and considered boycotting the Cosmos game, which was their big cash cow. But they were so peeved that they hadn't been paid that they were considering that. It, it never got close to uh, boycotting it, but it was talked about. Um, I, that was my, my reporting at the time. Um, and, uh, it just got worse and worse and worse. And basically what the New York owners decided to do is, uh, not pump in any more fresh money. And basically the, uh, the, the ownership, uh, the Rochester faction, uh, went into their uh, pockets. And, and like I said, they didn't, uh, they weren't millionaires by any means, but they were trying to, to keep uh, things afloat and unfortunately for the team it, it caught up to them uh, one time they turned off the electricity at the stadium where the players couldn't uh, they didn't have uh, hot water after practices um, and uh, it got to a point where um, you know the New York ownership where they really were, wanted to sell the team and uh, the Rochester owners because they lived in Rochester, they didn't want to sell the team. So this was a, a back and forth affair. Um, I think I was writing more about these battles than the team that year. Um, the team, by the way, we hired a coach, um, a, a coach of uh, from the 1970 team who was fired midway through the season before the team won the championship. Uh, his name is Alex Paroli. And you could do a, an hour and a half on this gentleman. I, um, he always claimed he was uh, 57 years old. He was, he was 57 years old in 1970, and he was 57 years old in 1980. Um, but anyway, uh, like I said, that's just the, <laughs> the part of the uh, tip of the iceberg. Uh, he wound up coaching the team the rest of the way. The, the team, uh, the team morale went uh, downhill. Um, Paroli got into a tiff with uh, their teenage star Bronco Sagoda. He took him out of a game. Sagoda walks past him on the bench and throws his shirt at him. And Sagoda gets suspended. Um, that didn't last more than a couple of weeks, but it was a telltale sign of that this team was literally losing their shirts eventually, I guess you could say. And um, it was uh, as a bizarre a season as I've covered, again, just because so much was happening off the field. I think I really learned how to become a, a news reporter that season. Uh, I think that superseded anything in terms of soccer. 
because I think what was happening off the field was uh, much more intriguing than what was happening on the field with a 12 and 20 team. Unfortunately, the Lancers, um, uh, they uh, were thrown out of the league by, uh, by the North American Soccer League. Uh, they had debts, a couple million dollars, which today is nothing. You know, if, if, if an MLS team is two million in the red, maybe we're talking about oh, they're, they've almost <laughs> they're almost been in the black type of thing. But back then, two million dollars was a lot more money, particularly uh, with with the NASL budgets, the Rochester budgets, and uh, Rochester battled to stay in the league. They uh, went uh, from one court to another. Um, you have to remember the two owners. Uh, uh, Pat Tenolfo and Charlie Ciano were, were attorneys, so they uh, knew the legal system, but they could not fight City Hall, or in this case, City Hall was the NESL, and uh, the after the 1980 season, the Rochester Lancers, um, the original Rochester Lancers went to the great uh, soccer league in the sky. Lots to unpack on that, but uh, did the <laughs> I'm NASL, sorry. No, that's okay. So, uh, and obviously, we'll 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 have another conversation or two uh, about other things because there's so much other stuff that that you've been a part of and, and have seen in the American soccer landscape. But but we should just continue on this Lancers thing because this is this is really good. I you know this is this is even uh, stuff brand new to sort of me, um, and I fancy myself as knowing some of this stuff. I'm wondering, and and maybe if you can remember through your uh, your memories of reporting and stuff, if if the NASL now, I'm trying to also put this in in perspective. Seventy nine, eighty, arguably maybe nearing the apex, or maybe just past the apex of its uh, of its uh, popularity. Uh, did they, the NASL, perhaps, and Woosnam in particular, maybe uh, after a sort of a period of times, maybe kind of almost uh, uh, not mind uh, this uh, situation blowing up, given what I'm perceiving to be. And this is based on our conversation with Ed Tepper a few months back on the MISL mm-hmm. front of an almost a uh, an undermining, I guess, by what became the most successful uh, early franchise in the MISL history, right? With basically the Rochester South and what I'm guessing was a battle between the NASL and the MISL for this indoor soccer thing. Or maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Maybe a little into it. By the way, yes, one thing I did call the Arrows Lancers South. And some people on the arrows who did not like what I had written in, in the Democrat and Chronicle, and they said, "No, we call the Lancers the Arrows North." But um, you know, there w- was there was a uh, a rivalry there. I think they they were always trying to start indoor soccer in Rochester, but uh, it never caught on. They, they had some exhibition games there, but uh, um, I think the MISL uh, thought that they were going to. Uh, uh, maybe supplant uh, the NASL because it was rock and roll soccer. You know, uh, you know, they were, it was exciting, you know, goal scorers, lots of goal scorers, uh, uh, celebrations, uh, um, sirens, uh, flashing lights, disco lights and, and whatnot. Uh, it was a, a different type of, uh, of a game of soccer. I know some people said this isn't soccer. Well, it was soccer. It was just a, a, a different uh, variation of it. There, uh, but I'm I'm not certain the indoor versus outdoor, like what, what you said, uh, led to the demise of the team. I think it was um, the, those other factors, the owners, 
battling, among other things, and the financial problems as well, too. Yeah, it's also interesting because uh, the same same kind of dynamic was also playing out in Houston, right, where the hurricane outdoors were essentially masquerading as the Houston uh, Summit soccer on the MISL front. Um, right. So it, 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 it had to be, in my mind, it almost feels like it had to exacerbate, at least on some level, some of this, that uh, the sort of friction. Because, well, again, our, our conversation with Ed Tepper, you know, it seems like the NASL uh, had more than ample opportunity to sort of jump on the uh, indoor bandwagon and, uh, in many respects, almost seemingly grasped onto it uh, a little too late after the MISL had, a, had, a, had established it, really. Oh, no doubt about it. The, uh, uh, again, if my memory serves me correctly, the NASL first tried um, indoor soccer. It was called Hock Sock because it reminded people of hockey played by soccer players. They uh, had a, a tournament in St. Louis in um, 1971. They had league-wide tournaments, regional tournaments in 75 and 76. And then they had uh, then those regional tournaments turned into a national championship prior to the season. Um, and then, you know, there was always talk of the league having an indoor league during the winter. It didn't happen until, yes, you're absolutely right, until uh, MISL um, started and showed how successful they were. But I don't think the NASL indoor league came anywhere close to the, uh, the MISL. Uh, the MISL uh, just seemed to be had more excitement. Uh, at least the, from, from an outsider from me. I mean, I did go to uh, plenty of indoor games on Long Island when I was visiting friends and family down here, my parents, and also in Buffalo as well, too. That was the closest franchise uh, to Rochester. But uh, from when I read about the NASL, uh, two planets, but different solar systems, I guess. <laughs> So uh, what what of the uh, the fan base in Rochester, what of you as a reporter covering the Lancers? I mean, uh, seeing this sort of ugly demise in 1980 when, um, you know, when uh, the league had really come so far in that 10-year period uh, when they had originally joined. I mean, was there a bit of a lament, a, a bit of sorrow, uh, some characters, I'm sure, no longer in your in your purview? Uh, what was the what was the feeling of you as the, as the beat reporter of that team? Now that the the team had basically kind of you know shot itself uh, in the foot uh, and and collapsed uh, from its own internal wounds, well, very well put with shooting itself in its in its foot. When I was re- reporting about the Lancers and their problems between the owners, um, I was telling my wife at the time, I'm, I think I'm leading what I'm writing is leading to the demise of this team. And by then, I was enjoying soccer, and I enjoyed covering the team. I, you know, and um, thinking, this isn't fair, but I've got to do my job and report what was happening. And um, it was hurting me on the inside, but uh, I'm a professional writer, and I've got to, again, report what's happening, no matter how bad it was going to look in a headline or in a... 800,000 word story the next day. Um, so I, I had uh, definitely mixed emotions about the demise of the team. I think a lot of fans uh, hated to see it go because they were colorful in their own way. I mean, again, uh, they they had plenty of their uh, uh, headaches off the field, but they were Rochester's team. You know, it's. Uh, I remember when I did a, um, 
a smattering of a history story uh, about the Landers before they played the Cosmos in the 1977 playoffs. And it was a front page story. When I say front page, not in the sports section, but in the entire paper, the lead story. And it said our, you know, our version of the Mets where, you know, the Lancers are our version of the Mets. And, um, you know, I, I think people took great pride in having a team in Rochester. The, the owners were hoping to turn Rochester into the green Bay of the NASL. And, uh, in some cases it was in sight, but they could never, ever, uh, get that, uh, go over the, the, the last hump it seemed there always seemed to be something in the, in the way there. Uh, you know, one thing I should uh, mention that the uh, team did replace the Lancers in the American soccer league um, called the Rochester flash. Uh, they played in 1981, 82 took 83 off and then came back in the United soccer league in 84. Um, attendance was never the same. Um, they had a few interesting character players on the team, but it was never the same excitement and interest as the Lancers. It was better than nothing, but uh, nowhere near the, the excitement that the Lancers drew. And let's face it, when you have Johan Cruyff, Bobby Moore, Calais, Beckenbauer, Canalia, um, George Best coming to town, maybe not every week, but... Uh, couple times a month there's a there's a lot of excitement there and they might be might have been near the end of their careers but they could still perform some magic with the ball maybe not for every minute of the 90 minutes but uh, that made it special too and to be fair rochester had some good players too and fans had some of their favorites as well too any players that stand out in your memory uh from from that long lineage maybe even including the flash for that matter uh, that uh, you know stuck out in terms of uh, you know their their personalities or their uh, ineptitude or or their uh, passion for the game or other or otherwise stand out in your mind. Well, I you know Mike Stojanovic, one of the um, the most uh, passionate players I, I ever met. Um, probably at one time I wrote about him more than any other player, just because he was so quotable, whether or not. <laughs> Uh, it was uh, he was a legend in his own mind, but he could score goals. He he finished uh, uh, had 17 goals in his first season with the Lancers, third in the league, only to Canalia, and I think it was Derek Smithurst of the Tampa Bay Rowdies, um, dangerous player, uh, uh, right-footed player, uh, hard shot, run like the wind, but after practice he would smoke cigarettes. You know, we're talking 1976-77 through, you know, 1980, different time. But I always wondered how good he would might have been if maybe he had a, a little extra lung capacity. But again, he would certainly leave me behind in, in a race and probably most of us mere mortals. Uh, the story about Mike, uh, when he came over from Yugoslavia to join the Serbian White Eagles, we're talking about Don Popovich's old team. Back in the mid '70s, he like signed on a, a Thursday night. Uh, the the uh, team got his papers done. The next day, he went out and played for the team, and that's what Mike Stojanovic was was a, a player um, who, who would go out and just keep uh, 
running and playing for the team. Um, and, uh, you know, a character, uh, he once told me on the record that Chicago had, uh, contacted him, the Chicago, uh, sting had contacted him about joining the team. And I'm thinking, really, <laughs> the first thing I thought of was, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> you're not supposed to contact the player. You're supposed to contact the team. Well, I, uh, call up Lee Stern, the, um, the, uh, the owner, the president and owner of this thing. And um, he said, yes, we'd be interested in a, a great player by, uh, like Stojanovic, but we never contacted him at all. And then I remember probably the most memorable part of the interview, Lee Stern said, well, I think, you know, something, I think I'm going to have to call the Rochester Lancers now because I want to make sure that their phones are still working. Uh, and uh, I put that in the story because it was on the record. Um, but it, I think it tells you a lot about the, the wild west of the NASL days back at the time. Uh, Mike Stojanovic, uh, unfortunately, um, passed away, uh, due to stomach cancer in, um, in 2010. And, uh, that was, uh, came from directly or indirectly from his, uh, in his smoking habit. Uh, before he passed away that November, uh, he went to a, a Lancers reunion. They had the 40th anniversary of the team's uh, NASL championship from 1970. And, but they brought back all the players, which, you know, like old-timers day in many baseball uh, stadiums, which was great. I went up there. I had more fun there than at a high school reunion, trust me. And um, I brought up a few a few of my old stories, and I did a, a major piece about Mike Stojanovic in a uh, – big soccer magazine at the time. And I wanted to give him a copy of it. And he was very proud of it. And he gave me something. I think he knew he was going to, to die, but he gave me uh, the letter he received from the Canadian soccer uh, association when he learned that he was going to be inducted into the hall of fame and he wanted me to have it. And I think he realized that I wasn't going to throw it out. Maybe he knows that I'm a hoarder of soccer information and, and books and whatnot too. And he was absolutely right. I'm not gonna. I, I never. I haven't thrown it out. It's uh, it's in my files. And um, what was great about that reunion was that uh, it was done at a, a Rochester Rhinos game. And this is when the Rhinos still you know, still bringing in some crowds. Maybe not as much as they did back in the. Uh, mid nineties and early two thousands, but, uh, they still had a pretty decent crowd and, um, he was, you know, honored, uh, at halftime with the rest of the team. And then, uh, uh there was a special, uh, Sunday, uh, luncheon for the team as well, too. And he got a very, very nice uh, ovation from the fans. I think people, uh, knew that, uh, they might not see him again. And, um, I'm sorry for going on another soliloquy about um, uh, one player, but he was the, one of the most interesting players, the craziest players I had ever uh, met in my life. And I could probably tell you a few more stories, but uh, um, that, that definitely, uh, he definitely stands out. And a great goal scorer too, no doubt. But it, it does speak though to that, uh, the fact that the fans sort of uh, warmly remembered and embrace him. Um, you know, th this, and maybe this is sort of a, a, a convenient way to kind of uh, close the loop on the, our little excursion into Rochester. And, and promise me you'll come back and we'll talk about some other 
topics because you've covered just about everything in it. Uh, but this is to go deep on this one is actually quite revealing, at least to me. Um, it feels to me that, you know, you're mentioning the rhinos, right? The, the mid the late 90s uh, and the fact that Rochester, you know, was this, if you will, Green Bay of the North American Soccer League. Right. Um, there is a, a soccer culture there professionally that, uh, you know, I think that a, a lot of. You know, uh, Johnny come lately MLS franchises, shall we say, uh, would, uh, uh, you know, be jealous of um, what is it? Uh, I mean, there there was a time there, I guess, in the late 90s, early 2000s that that uh, Rochester was uh, strongly considered as being a potential uh, MLS uh, uh, expansion candidate as as that sort of small, smaller city kind of uh uh, a vibe in in uh, in pro soccer as it exists today. Uh, what of the soccer culture there now? And you know, is that essentially time lost, or what of the soccer culture that uh, that the Rochester Lancers uh, initiated? I know they've got an indoor team and they've gone back to the to that name, uh, but is that sort of a, a time that is past, or or potentially uh, could can uh, uh, flourish again? You'd hope that it could flourish again. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, Rochester Lancers, like many NASL clubs, planted the seeds for what we see today. No doubt about it. You know, we, if it wasn't for the NASL, I don't know. I don't know if we're, we're talking tonight uh, today. Um, you know, if I'm in the soccer business, uh, who knows? Maybe I would have become a baseball writer. Although I probably would have burnt myself out in two or three years on road trips. But uh, you know, no doubt that they laid the groundwork for teams like the Rhinos. Um, you know, I remember going up to Rochester a number of times in the early days of the Rhinos, and there were a lot of Rochester Lancer fans who were maybe uh, younger teenagers at the time uh, who are now Rhino fans. They became Ardman soccer fans. Um, it, you know, and I should say that Rochester soccer did not start with the Lancers. It, you know, it, it was helped by the Italian American sport club, but I've done my research on Rochester soccer history and they've had a, a very strong amateur league for decades before even the Lancers. So there was a lot of groundwork done, um, even before that, uh, the rhinos, um, you know, lightning in the bottle. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, they played at a baseball stadium, and I dislike soccer being played at baseball stadiums, but this atmosphere there was second to none. It was incredible. I uh, I did not dislike the Rhinos playing at Frontier Field, which is the home of the Rochester Red Wings, the, the AAA um, International League. At the time, they were the Baltimore Orioles affiliate, and I think now they're the Minnesota Twins affiliate. Uh, but it was, they, they would draw, they would fill up the place, 14,000 people on a regular basis. It was incredible. And they played some more importantly, or just as importantly, they played some dynamic soccer, you know, winning uh, a league titles. Uh, uh, and, uh, actually there was in 1999, they captured the, um, Lamar hunt U S open cup, the last non MLS team to do so. Um, they were, um, they were super red hot for the longest time. Um, it, unfortunately, you know, they wanted to, they wanted their own stadium and I could understand that because, uh, 1999, the first soccer civic stadium was, uh, built 
in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, that was supposed to start a new era for not just MLS teams, but uh, teams below that league. And it took a year and a day. It took uh, uh, seemingly forever for, for that team to, to get a their own stadium built. And people claim it's in the wrong place. It doesn't have the atmosphere. Um, so many things did not go well uh, for the for the rhinos in in the last uh, five to five years or so, even though they were successful on the field many times, they had a, I don't think they had poor teams. They had uh, at the worst competitive teams, but some something was lost. Some you know, that lightning escaped from the bottle, and uh, they could never really recapture it um, after the uh, nineteen. I'm sorry, the 2018 season, uh, the uh, the owners, the, the present-day owners, uh, who tried to save the team, they decided to go on hiatus uh, for a year, and uh, they wanted to come back as, as a lower division team uh, in the USL, and haven't heard from them since about that. Saying that, um, yes, the Rochester Lancers are back in a different form, as an indoor team, they came back uh, for the uh, 2011 uh, major indoor soccer league season, the new MISL, not the old one, uh, Soccer Sam Fantuzo, uh, a, a soccer fan from way back when, uh, a Lancers fan from way back when, uh, way back in 1995, bought the Lancers logo and... Um, wanted to revive the team someday and uh, they did uh, quite well uh, indoor soccer wise uh, soccer sam knows how to promote the team uh, it's incredible how many uh, sponsors he has uh, with the, uh, has had with the team uh, no doubt about it um, uh, unfortunately uh, the cost of um, uh, workman's compensation caught up with the team and he had to uh, pull it back uh, from indoor soccer for a few years before it came back in the major arena soccer league second division this year. And they played uh, a 12 game schedule and they uh, uh, sold out uh, their uh, a much smaller arena than what they played uh, before. Uh, but uh, they were getting 2,500 a game. And sometimes it's better to, um, to see 2,500 uh, people at a packed uh, arena than it is to, to see six, 7,000 at a an arena where they're all over the place. But um, the Lancers also play outdoor soccer uh, in a league called the National Premier Soccer League. It's a, an amateur league, primarily an amateur league. Um, and they play at a, a high school stadium. And they even have a, a women's team called the Lady Lancers as well, too. Whether or not uh, these Lancers or the Rhinos can recapture the glory days of old, um, whether it's the original Lancers or Rhinos, um, at the moment, I don't see that happening. Um, there are a lot of factors there. Um, sometimes I think the, the Rochester media likes to report more on Buffalo and Syracuse teams, the Syracuse University basketball and football teams and the Buffalo Bills than they do on the, um, on the Rochester teams, which is, uh, kind of sad 
but then again, they're not, they're probably not the only newspaper that, uh, that does that as well too, but a uh, uh, great legacy of soccer. Um, for some reason, I can't see soccer dying in Rochester, professional soccer dying. I think there will always be teams or um, uh, clubs that are going to try to promote the game. But it will be, I think, difficult, to, uh, maybe not impossible, but difficult for a team to capture uh, what what the Rhinos had back in the late 90s. Hey, you win a few championships or and get a couple of the exciting players, who knows what could happen. All right, so uh, let's uh, uh, one last question then, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll close the door on this uh, Rochester uh, experience. And then again, please promise me you'll come back and we'll talk about some other topics, okay? Did you ever imagine that uh, that your coverage, your first ever, you know, real sort of full-time pro uh, beat reporting gig, uh, you know, would lead to uh, essentially a lifetime of, of – uh, of expertise uh, as a soccer reporter in this country, uh, and 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 the doors that uh, you know it's opened up to you outside the uh, uh, the still fledgling hamlet of Rochester, New York. Never in my greatest uh, dreams. Never. Um, I mean, like I said, I want. I grew up being a baseball fan. I was hope I was hoping maybe to cover a baseball team, maybe a football team, basketball team, hockey. Rochester was not on my uh, my plate at all. Uh, but one of the owners of the Lancers, uh, one of the, not one of the original ones, but he came on later on. His name is Nori Sabunku. He said, once soccer gets in your blood, you can't get it out. And I thought, well, what a cliche that was. And that was in 1977, if my memory serves me correctly. And then something a few years later, when I was getting into this thing and I went to England for the first time in 1982 and I uh, so went to Wembley and uh, and I, all of a sudden I, I go to the uh, the Olympics and then the World Cup and I said, yeah, soccer is in my blood. And, uh, you know, I like to think I became a student of the game. I never played it, which I, I feel I missed out something there. Uh, well, I have played it, but in media games, so you know how badly media games are. But um, I think I could tell uh, I, there's a certain knowledge of uh, tactical awareness on my part. Uh, I'm humble enough to know that I'm always learning about the game. There's always something new to learn about the, the game every day. Um, but uh, never in my, uh, great, like I said, greatest dreams would I think this would happen. One thing that I've enjoyed about the game, and I, you know, I talked about seeing the world and seeing, going to different countries. Uh, uh, every player, every coach, everyone has a different story out there. And I've covered uh, youth soccer uh, from four-year-olds playing for the first time to 50, 60-year-olds playing. And uh, the joy that I see at the different levels and uh, – is still there and that's that's what i think fuels my helps fuel my passion for the game and i've enjoyed covering the game uh no matter what it is i like i said uh, the kids playing soccer for the first time uh I, I was laughing because kids are running down the field holding hands kids are picking daisies or dandelions uh, that sort of thing um and then you see these uh, skilled 50-year-olds who might not uh, 
have the engines anymore to run up and down the field, but you could tell that they could still handle the ball. So there's um, certainly beauty in that game as well, too. So, uh, but yeah, to answer your question, I, I would never, I would have laughed in your face and said, you got to be kidding me. What, you know, um, you're not putting me in that timeline that, <laughs> by any means, but I'm glad I, 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 I had that door open to me. Um, met a lot of great people, um, and uh, I I couldn't even begin to mention or make a list of how many people influenced me in so many different ways, and I wouldn't trade this for the world because um, unlike baseball, like I said, getting burnt out after two or three years, you know, game after game after game, soccer games, you might have three games in eight days, which is a pretty good pace. Uh, but I, I, I enjoy the beautiful game and, uh, I hope to continue. I'm no spring chicken anymore, but I hope to continue uh, covering it because there are so many intriguing stories to write about. And that's where I get, uh, I think I get more excited sometimes of, about a story than necessarily the money I'm getting for it. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy getting paid for my stories, but, uh, there's something to be said about, oh, this is a great story. I better, I better not ruin it because this is a great story to tell. All right, friends, uh, that's our conversation with Michael. We thank him, of course, and we're absolutely going to have him back uh, more than once. Uh, there's a whole raft of, uh, of great stories that uh, Michael has chronicled uh, over the years. Uh, the Lancers obviously being sort of the first and foremost, but uh, but hardly uh, the only one. And uh, I guarantee you that we will have Michael back uh, to go deep on a, a bunch of different and interesting topics uh, in the realm of pro soccer uh, in the months to come. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Soccer Writer. That's at Soccer Writer. It's all one word. And uh, of course, you can also go uh, and check out uh, the site that he edits uh, called Front Row Soccer. You'll find them on Twitter at Front Row Soccer, as well as the uh, website at frontrowsoccer.com. And as uh, you heard uh, Michael allude to, a bunch of things that uh, you could check out now and uh, in the near future, uh, one of which is uh, Soccer for Dummies, which is uh, just the great uh, handbook for anybody of your friends, any of your friends who uh, fancy themselves as starting to become interested in the sport of soccer. There's no better primer uh, to get them uh, sort of up and running and uh, arguably uh, to get to your level of, uh, of fandom, hopefully to get the same spark that uh, you might have when you first discovered the game. And that's uh, Soccer for Dummies. We'll have a, a link to, uh, to that book and a bunch of Michael's other books on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode and you'll be able to find uh, a copy of that on Amazon and uh, click on that and buy that through us. We appreciate that very much. Uh, but you also heard uh, Michael uh, getting ready to uh, launch a new book on Olympic soccer. A very interesting and, frankly, uh, largely untapped treasure trove of stories. Uh, that book sounds like it's going to come out at the end of this year, 2019, just in time for you know the preamble uh, around the, uh, the Summer Olympics next year in Tokyo. Uh, so that'll be fun. We'll be on the lookout for that. And uh, let's encourage Michael, shall we, to uh, to at some point after uh, that is all done and, and, and dusted uh, to get into uh, maybe documenting a little bit more oral history and then some of the Rochester Lancers, uh, as we kind of hinted at today as well. So lots of fun stuff coming from Michael Lewis. We uh, encourage you to check out all of his past, uh, present and future work 
why don't you? And I'm sure he'll appreciate it too. Uh, I know that'll be the case. And I know that our friends at Podfly Productions, our friends who put uh, our collective pieces together, in particular, Jerry Payne, the good doctor, uh, will be uh, very happy to uh, receive your website visit at podfly.net, especially if you're interested in maybe getting into this podcast thing yourself. It's uh, no better place to sort of get a sense of what the hell's going on, how this stuff works, and uh, maybe how you can get involved. Uh, yourself. It's Podfly Productions. You can find them at podfly.net. And a reminder, you can find us at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's our website. That is the locus for everything about this little show. Uh, you will find all of our 114 and growing number of episodes there. Uh, you'll find cool imagery there. You'll find all the links to all the books and all the media that we reference. That's all there for you. You'll find all of our social media links. Uh, like on Twitter, you'll find us at goodseatsstill. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You will find us on uh, Facebook as well. There's a page devoted to us uh, there. On our website, you will find a, uh, a link that will take you to signing up for our newsletter, which we send out every week, alerting you to uh, what each week's episode is about, a little bit before uh, the hoi polloi, so to speak. And uh, so be on the inside of that, why don't you? And then, of course, if you want to send us an email, uh, there's a link to that there, too, on the website. But uh, if you want to just do that uh, by good old-fashioned typing it into your email system, well, go ahead. It's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. There are multiple ways to stay in contact with us, say hello, get in touch, whatever. Please, by all means, do so. We love hearing from our fans. And uh, at some point, we'll start shouting you out uh, personally. Oh, and by the way, one last thing. Please, please, please give us a rating or review, why don't you? Certainly on Apple Podcasts. Uh, or iTunes or wherever, whatever they're calling it this week. Uh, we appreciate that. Certainly the more stars, the better. We love that. That helps our algorithm a bit. But frankly, wherever you can leave ratings and reviews and stuff, tell your friends and uh, we appreciate your doing so. And uh, I think that's it for now, don't you think? Sure. I've uh, exhausted myself. I've exhausted you, I'm sure. And I look forward to uh, trying to do the same again next week, hopefully with quality content. And until then, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. And until next week, Uh, The ticket window is now closed. See ya.